the armed forces of Ukraine have reportedly broken through the first line of Russia's defense in the south. Meanwhile, Ukraine has further strengthened the F-16 coalition, as well as organized the third Crimean platform summit to discuss the peninsula's reintegration. You're listening to the Explain Ukraine podcast. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, an English-language website about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher, journalist, and chief editor of Ukraine World. I invite you to our roundup of the key events and trends in and around Ukraine over the past week, delivered by my colleagues Maxim Panchenko and Anastasia Herasimchuk, journalist and analyst at Ukraine World. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Let me remind you that you can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Hello and welcome. This is Ukraine World weekly podcast about the developments in and around Ukraine for the last week. My name is, is Maxim Panchenko. I am journalist and analyst at Ukraine World. And I'm joined by my colleague, equally journalist and analyst at Ukraine World, Nastasia Hrasimchuk. Uh, Nastya, hello. Uh, hello, Maxim. Can you please outline a little bit of uh, what we're going to be discussing today, and then we'll plunge into the discussion. We are going to touch upon traditional topics like Ukrainian counteroffensive, Russian attacks on Ukrainian peaceful cities, which do not cease. We are also going to talk about important diplomatic uh, events that happened in Ukraine, we will tell you about the Independence Day of Ukraine and some important issues connected to it. Uh, we are going to highlight the special operations of Ukrainian armed forces in the Russian rear, deep rear. And uh, we will also give you some interesting facts about Ukrainians' opinion about possible compromise and talks with the Russian side. Thank you. So, yes, indeed, we're going to start off, as usually, basically, with the description of the latest developments around the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which has become a tradition of a kind. And But this week, uh, this has become even more a pressing issue because uh, the news are buzzing about Ukrainians uh, having come to the first line of defense and even broken through the first line of defense of Russians in the south. So, uh, among all the places uh, along which the warfare is going on these days uh, in Ukraine, the, the, the South has proven to be the biggest hotspot. Uh, and the biggest developments are uh, happening near the little village of uh, Robotne, which is once again in Zaporizhia Oblast. If you look at the map, you will see that uh, Ukrainian armed forces probably are trying to go to the southwest uh, of, uh, of the front lines and are trying to advance in the direction of uh, the occupied city of uh, Tokmak, which then, if successfully recaptured, would be a threshold to uh, advancing further to Melitopol. And that way Ukrainians would be able to uh, cut off a big chunk of the territory occupied uh, by Russians in the south. That would be basically the, the entire remainder of the Kherson Oblast uh, that still uh, remains occupied on the left bank of the river uh, Dnipro and also parts of the Zaporizhia Oblast. So 
uh, first of all, that's, that's the first big news, that uh, Ukrainians are breaking through the defense lines of uh, Russians in the south, and uh, which means... And that means that uh, the things in the South may be accelerating in the days and weeks to come. And of course, Ukraine needs that uh, that in the coming, I would say, at most couple of months before the late, the late autumn and winter ensues. And uh, but also, um, understandably, there are skeptics in the in the West primarily that say that uh, the progress is still not that fast. Uh, and against that backdrop, one of the news breaks that have uh, th- appeared, I think, in New York Times this week is that uh, General Zaluzhny, Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian commander-in-chief uh, of Ukrainian forces, has said that uh, Ukrainians are now on the threshold of a breakthrough in the South. So I think that means that uh, what you, what the world needs to be paying attention to now, these days, these weeks, is indeed the south of Ukraine. It's not easy because everybody needs to remember about the minefields and uh, about the time that Russians have had, almost a year, I would say, that the Russians have had uh, to prepare their defense in these regions. But still, Ukrainians are um, reportedly succeeding here. The important thing to keep in mind is that, uh, once again, as General Zaluzhny said, uh, this is this should be perceived as a, not not as something instant, uh, imminently instant, but rather as a, a Kursk battle in the Second World War. This is, I think, a very good reference because uh, this points out to the fact that successful battles. Uh, and ironically, in very neighboring areas, because Kursk uh, battle happened not very far from the warfare in Ukraine these days, they do not necessarily happen very swiftly. They happen with a good deal of preparation and a good and a good deal of time being paid to uh, make the forces of of an opponent abate and become weaker. So once again, we'll be following the uh, developments on the ground, and that way. We'll keep you updated on any further things that may happen there in the meantime. In the meantime, what happened in and what is happening in the Zaporizhia front lines uh, is not the only things in which Ukraine is successful, and NASA has more to uh, to share in this uh, respect because beyond mainland Ukraine, let me summarize as that. Beyond that, uh, Ukraine also has. Uh, some other very significant successes, I would say, in Crimea and elsewhere. Nastya, can you please draw a little bit on this? Indeed, this week has been marked by important events in context of strategic gains by Ukrainian armed forces. And here we are talking not only about the events on the front lines, we are talking about the first of all, uh, occupied Crimea, and we are talking about the deep real of uh, Russian territory. So uh, what important happened these days? Uh, On the 23rd of August, we all were um, surprised and very happy about uh, news, about a special operation by Ukrainian armed forces, um, thanks to which the air defense system S-400 Triumph and anti-ship missile system Bastion was destroyed. So Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian army launched an air raid 
And these important parts of Russian air defense uh, in the western part of Crimea in the uh, Tarhankut um, Cape were destroyed. Why it is so important? Uh, we know about West Russian military capabilities. However, uh, there is opinion that Russian air defense is not that strong as they wish it uh, could be. And uh, events that are happening in uh, Moscow, for example, with uh, Ukrainian drones and those events in Crimea prove that. So Russians uh, concentrated their best capabilities on the front lines, which makes their rear weaker. And destruction of such important elements of uh, the air defense of Russians in the occupied Crimea uh, is a huge, huge and important loss for Russians. So the next uh, day, it's become known for us that uh, on the, uh, in the morning of the 24th of August, the Ukrainian sabotage reconnaissance group reached Crimea uh, and fulfilled a special operation there in the same Tarhankut Cape. Uh, so we don't know uh, all the details about this operation, which is absolutely clear. This is These are security issues. But according to our military, uh, all the tasks, uh, this group fulfilled all the tasks and no one was killed, so we didn't lose our people. What's important here, like why this operation was important? Uh, we know that uh, this place where the special operation was fulfilled is a place of location of radio-technical regiments uh, of Russian armed forces. And we can say that it's a radio location hub. Uh, so again, we are talking about uh, radio electronic uh, warfare, we are talking about air defense. Uh, so we understand that the developments there are really uh, important. It's a huge step forward and Ukraine keeps uh, sticking to these tactics of uh, weakening uh, the enemy, weakening the occupier, not directly fighting, not only directly fighting uh, with its armed forces on the front lines, but trying to weaken it uh, from inside its territory or from inside the occupied territories. So, Maxim, uh, we also know about other important special operations that uh, Ukrainian armed forces fulfilled. For example, Mi-8 helicopter uh, incident. So, can you tell us about it. Yes, I did. Uh, but before that, there, I, I would like to summarize what you have been talk talking about, that indeed the air defense installations that were operational in the western cape of uh, Crimea, they pretty much covered not only the Crimean Peninsula itself, but, itself, but also from the rear, it was covering, they were covering the front lines from the Russian side uh, in the occupied parts uh, of the Kherson Oblast. So, uh, these installations haven't been aimed and hit by Ukrainians in a very daring raid. This testifies to several uh, things in a row. First, this means this is about the optics, as it usually would be on in developments of such a big scale. 
that uh, we Ukrainians can reach pretty much every corner of the Crimean uh, Peninsula. Because think about, think back for, for a second. Uh, before Ukrainians targeted Ukrainian, uh, uh, the Crimean Bridge, I think it was in October last year for the first time, uh, there had not been precedence when Ukraine, Ukraine had these long-range capabilities to target something that deep in the rear of Russian forces. And now we have so much, so big of an arsenal to do that because we have hit the Crimean Bridge. Once again, we have hit the uh, Tarhangu Cape, the air defense uh, capabilities there. We are regularly uh, hitting the airfields in the Crimean Peninsula, as we also are hitting the bridges that exist between the Crimean Peninsula and the occupied parts of the, uh, of the Kharkiv Oblast. So I think that testifies to this first of the, of the big things, uh, you know, to the optics of the things that uh, we show Russia that Crimea is pretty much under Ukraine's control in this sense. We control what's going on there, and we know where to press, where to push, in order to change Russia's situation on that side of the front lines. So that's one. And secondly, uh, speaking about in more operational terms, I think that Ukraine needed the uh, dysfunction of these air defense capabilities in the western part of the of the Crimean Peninsula, uh, in order to lay the groundwork for further operations that are going to uh, to take place in the peninsula. So I th- I think this was a kind of an overture to things, because if you think about it, to hit something with long range missiles from the Ukrainian um, Ukrainian controlled territories, you would have to bypass with those missiles be it the French missiles or the British uh, missiles, you would have to bypass the uh, air defense of Russia stationed in Crimea. So maybe this was a prerequisite to make the amount of air defense installations that Ukrainian missiles would have to bypass smaller. So I think we need to also look in the future because as much as this is an accomplishment in itself, I think this was also a preparation for something bigger. So let's follow this and we'll cover this if anything more happens. Uh, and indeed, uh, as uh, Nastya announced, there have been some more uh, other um, developments when it comes to the successes of Ukrainian intelligence, military intelligence in the battlefield. For instance, there has been an episode with a Russian uh, pilot of a Mi-8 helicopter who was uh, basically enticed to come to Ukraine by Ukrainian forces, by Ukrainian military intelligence. Reportedly, uh, and I say reportedly because there are not so many details about it yet, uh, because of obvious reasons, this operation remains to a great extent being clandestine. Uh, a Russian uh, a Russian pilot was uh, convinced by Ukrainian forces to surrender, but not only to surrender, but also to bring machinery with him, as long as he was a pilot and he was, uh, and he had a helicopter in his use. So there was this uh, operation. I think it was to the, uh, well, we do not know necessarily uh, where he came from, specifically from the occupied territories, but he landed in Ukrainian controlled territories in Poltava. Uh, and I think uh, this is the Potava village in Kharkiv Oblast, because there is also the Potava regional center in Ukraine. 
but that would be 300 miles, 300 kilometers from the front lines. So I think we're talking about this front line, uh, contact line uh, being uh, crossed only that much by by this um, by, by this helicopter pilot. But one way or another, this sets a precedent when, first of all, Russian uh, pilots, the Russian military, have a good incentive to give in. They, I promised, basically, from what can be gathered from the reports and the news, they are uh, promised not just the reimbursement for the machinery they bring in, but also new identities to live in Ukraine if they choose to do so. So indeed, that this can be, as I said, a precedent for uh, more people to do so. And for the time being, this can be just a one-off thing. But it also is inspiring because uh, we understand that we have kind of an insight into the minds of, uh, uh, of the Russian military. And we understand that it is not as monolith as it could be. Uh, so, of course, uh, we look forward to more of such instances happening in the future. However, of course, this is the situation is not all rainbows and unicorns, as they would put it, uh, because Russia continues shelling Ukrainian cities, uh, Ukrainian peaceful cities, Ukrainian towns. And this week, it has pretty much been exclusively only the peaceful towns, not just infrastructure projects that, that Russia was trying to hit, or maybe uh, military objects, military units, etc. The two most bloodshedding instances, unfortunately, that happened this week were the strikes on uh, uh, a, a town in Sumy Oblast. The town is called Romny, and a Shahed drone uh, hit a school, just a school, there uh, on August twenty third. Uh, from what can be gathered again from the news, uh, a couple of uh, People from the administration of the school were killed in this uh, in this attack. So once again, we have an instance when Russia is targeting strictly uh, civilian objects and is trying that way to intimidate civil civilian Ukrainians. And of course, we understand that there is a narrative that Russia is trying to uh, uh, is to spread to disseminate in the world that Ukrainians are trying to use peaceful civil, civilian facilities to disguise military objects and to uh, target Russian territory from that objects. Well, in response to that criticism and in response to that narrative, I would just suggest that our listeners go to Google Maps and try to Google where the town of Romny is situated, how far from the Ukrainian-Russian border that is and how much further even it is from the current contact line of the hot warfare between Ukraine and Russia, and make your conclusions based on that independently. Uh, one another strike that Russia has carried on, uh, carried out on Ukrainian cities has been a strike yesterday uh, on the on Ukraine Day's day of uh, independence. That was a strike against a bus station in Dnipro, and equally, uh, this is a totally civilian object, and uh, the only the only goal Russia could have hoped to achieve here, in a futile manner, I would say, uh, uh, was to intimidate uh, Ukrainian civilians. But uh, once again, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, Ukrainians are long past that, then, and they know better than to respond uh, to this kind of threats.
Now turning once again to uh, my colleague Anastasia, uh, there have been developments on the diplomatic fronts uh, around Ukraine during this past week, and they have been very significant because apart from the uh, tour, the ending of the tour that President Zelensky had had previously, uh, there have also been diplomatic events here in Ukraine. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what those events mean to Ukraine these days? Before talking directly about these diplomatic events and some diplomatic gains, uh, let's remind our listeners that this week on the 24th of August, Ukraine uh, celebrated its Independence Day. And it's a really important date. It's one of the most important holidays in Ukraine uh, in general. And especially nowadays, it's getting a special meaning, a special significance for all the Ukrainians. Because this independence, like, first of all, let's uh, remind that it's actually a holiday of not gaining independence, but restoring independence. Because Ukrainian uh, statehood history is not that short as 30 with something years. So uh, Ukraine had its statehood, uh, which unfortunately was interrupted. Uh, and the 1991 was the mark of restoration of Ukrainian independence. Today, with the uh, blood and Russian aggression against Ukraine, um, people here, Ukrainians, are reevaluating, reassessing the meaning of independence, the meaning of freedom, the meaning of uh, being able, having this opportunity to live our free life and to be Ukrainians. And it's not just a holiday, it's a symbol around which the Ukrainians are getting more united, more inspired. And these last uh, two years, it's also a holiday uh, with a pinch of bitterness in our hearts because uh, Ukrainians pay uh, with their blood for freedom and independence. And um, every year, uh, the Independence Day uh, collects, uh, it uh, makes uh, world leaders get together and discuss important issues and take uh, part in celebrations. Unfortunately, again, this year, they were not big celebrations, uh, especially because of the risks uh, from the Russian side and because of the dangers of massive attacks. However, several uh, world leaders still joined our uh, Ukrainian leadership in a small um, a celebration in the center of Kiev, and these were leaders of Norway, uh, Portugal, Lithuania, and also the chairman of Bosnian presidency took part in these uh, these events. And um, here we also should mention some um, gains, uh, Ukrainian diplomatic gains, or some uh, new packages uh, of support. Uh, of aid that we are going to get from our allies and partners. They are, of course, not because of the Independence Day uh, in Ukraine. They are timed. Their announcement uh, was timed to uh, the holiday. So what uh, I'm talking about? 
we received uh, during the visit of Norwegian Prime Minister to Ukraine, uh, we received a news, the news that uh, Norway decided to provide Ukraine with uh, parts, with certain amount of F-16 jets. There are 50, if I'm not mistaken, like several dozens, 15 with 50 with something. Uh, jets, uh, F-16 jets in Norway. So we don't know the exact number, uh, how many of them we are going to get, but it will be a certain part of this amount. Uh, another uh, Big and important military aid package Ukraine is going to receive from Lithuania, and the Lithuanian president announced about it. It's a 41 million euro worth uh, military aid package, which will include um, ammunition, rifles, uh, radar systems for um, maritime security, and even power generations. And... Um, some time ago, like just uh, several, like several days ago, Lithuania also announced that in September, uh, it will um, give Ukraine additional air defense system NASAMS, which is extremely important for Ukrainian security and security of Ukrainian citizens because uh, of constant Russian attacks on peaceful cities. So these air defense systems are something that we badly need. And um, another package uh, is going to come here to Ukraine from Germany. So by the 24th of August, uh, we received the updated list of military aid. Uh, so it will include missiles for Patriot systems, uh, systems to detect uh, drones, uh, also several reconnaissance drones, ammunition, etc. And several weeks ago, by the way, Germany also announced that it will give Ukraine a new Iris T air defense system, uh, which is again extremely important, and some launching systems for Patriots air defense systems. Uh, so uh, here we can see that uh, Ukrainian partners and allies not only express their solidarity by taking part uh, in uh, celebrations or uh, just supporting Ukraine by their presence on the land of the country which is in the state of war, which is under direct aggression. They are not afraid of coming here and supporting us. Uh, it's also a sign of real feasible support and it's extremely important for Ukraine. Ukraine appreciates it even though we need more uh, ammunition, we need jets immediately. Still, uh, these packages, these signs of solidarity, these supplies are something that makes the um, Western world the countries which are united by liberal values and democratic values, um, they make this uh, part of the world solidified uh, and united in face of the threat. Uh, by the way, it's also very important to know that the visit of Portugal president was the first visit of this president to Ukraine. And Maxim, can you uh, dwell on this a little bit more, please? Well, actually, uh, yes. And this is 
uh, a good lead to what I wanted to discuss even further following your mentions of the F-16s and uh, the F-16s topic with regard to Norway. But also I would like to expand this topic because uh, we all remember how last week, and we discussed it in our previous episode, uh, President Zelensky went to the Netherlands and to Denmark in addition to Sweden, but specifically to the Denmark and the Netherlands, which is important for the story, to negotiate the handover of the F-16s. And then he has continued his uh, diplomatic tour, uh, has returned to Ukraine, has received foreign leaders, including the Portuguese leaders uh, here in Kyiv. But what uh, what is important, uh, I think, is that even though the F-16 story has stopped being mentioned in these diplomatic developments uh, in the Netherlands and Denmark, still, I think there is... This is a very important talk, uh, talk and very important topic in each of President Zelensky's topic, uh, sorry, talk to any foreign leader these days too. Because the thing that I uncovered, this was a surprise for myself, which is why I want our uh, listeners to once again to go to Google and look up the map of the operators of F-16 fighter jets. Because viscerally, it is very tentative to think that, well, as far as this is a a jet produced by NATO states, it must be a NATO uh, conventional fighter jet for all the countries. But if you look at the map, there are only so many countries that use uh, the F-16 jets and that are the operators of the F-16 jets. And uh, Ukrainian president, president, President Zelensky has come into contact with pretty much all of them in the recent weeks. So if you look at Europe, the uh, operators are exhausted with the Netherlands and Denmark, which Ukraine has already negotiated with, with Norway, the news of which my colleague Anastasia has already delivered to you, with Romania, who had previously said that uh, it would help train Ukrainian pilots, and with Poland, who said, uh, well, who had previously given the Soviet-made jets to Ukraine and that way it had to keep as a counterweight, to keep the F-16s to itself, to be able to defend uh, itself if if the need be. But also, the several other operators of F-16s in Europe are Greece, where where Ukrainian president uh, went on on his tour after after Denmark and the Netherlands, and Portugal whose leader has come to Ukraine to attend the Crimean platform and other diplomatic events. So I think that this is, there, there is much more here to the story that meets the eye, or in this sense, that breaks the headlines in the media, because the media have only been talking about De- Denmark and the Netherlands, and later on about Norway. But also, I would say that the Portuguese and the Greece and the Greek contacts with Ukrainian authorities these days are not uh, accidental. I would say, I would bet that this also means that uh, they are going to be engaged into either preparation or delivery of f to uh, to Ukraine too. And in that line, just uh, as we usually put things into perspective, in this particular instance, I would say that uh, the leaders of Ukrainian air defense, uh, air forces, sorry, 
have uh, recently said that uh, in order to be effective in the front lines and to be able to put off the danger uh, that uh, comes off from the Russian side uh, in the air department, uh, Ukraine needs as much as 128 jets, 128 to 130 jets, specifically F-16s. Ukraine has already negotiated half of that number with the Netherlands, with Denmark, and uh, probably with uh, Norway. But as Nasa said, we do not really know the number of jets they're going to hand over yet. But still, against that backdrop, that this only accounts for half of the needed amount, once again, I think this uh, is another confirmation that the talks with, the port- with Portugal and Greece have also not been in vain. And th- th- these talks have also focused on, uh, on the F-16s delivery. Of course, there are other, other states uh, across the world that uh, operate F-16s, but they, first of all, are much further geopolitically for- from Ukraine. So they have, I would say, less interest to help Ukraine. And they also are in a more vulnerable position themselves too, or at least many of them are. For instance, South Korea or Taiwan or Pakistan. I don't think that any of them would sacrifice their efforts for Ukraine, given the geopolitical uh, realities they themselves live in. So it will be interesting to follow this uh, these developments in the future. As Ukraine's uh, defense minister, Alexei Reznikov, said, uh, Ukraine is going to need another six to seven months for the training of the pilots to come to an end and for the F-16 to actually be delivered to Ukraine. So we'll have to see what happens in the meantime if more countries, including those I have enumerated, jump on the bandwagon. In the meantime, another big topic that has happened not in Ukraine but in Russia but still has big bearing on Ukraine is the story around the death, the assumed death, I would say, because nobody saw the the dead body by this time, of Evgeny Prigozhin, the founder of the notorious Wagner Group, uh, who was presumably, I would go and say, killed in Russia. Uh, Nasta has a little bit more to say about this. So basically, what happened and why is this important for Ukraine? The story of Prigozhin's death is covered by mystery. So uh, there are some facts, but the whole story cannot be covered because we don't know uh, so many details. Uh, So what basically happened? On the 23rd of August, the private jet owned by Prigozhin uh, with him and uh, his close circle on the board was uh, allegedly shot uh, or there was an explosion, like there are several versions of why this uh, air crash happened. Air crash happened. Uh, so the plane fell down and all the people who were on board uh, died. So as I've just mentioned, there are several uh, several versions, uh, several um, ideas why it could happen. According to one of them, as it was told initially, uh, including uh, some uh, Russian sources, it was said that the Russian air defense shut down this uh, private Prigozhin's jet 
Then another version appeared. Uh, some people say that uh, some boxes uh, with explosion with um, the explosive materials were uh, took to the jet, and the explosion happened inside uh, the plane. So we we don't know what exactly happened. Another thing is um, to understand why exactly it happened. So if uh, Prigozhin uh, was on the on board indeed, and if he died, uh, as Russian state, why it happened? It's clear that it was not an accidental event. So there are also different opinions, but uh, people around the world, journalists, analysts, uh, tend to think that it was the Putin's revenge uh, to Prigozhin uh, because of his um, his attempt to um, to organize this mutiny, which happened exactly two months before his death. So it, it, it really seems that Russian authorities um, wanted to show that they have control and they can punish uh, all those people who uh, stand against them. So this version looks plausible, but again, uh, all the details are not uh, clear, are not known by anyone. Uh, so um, if... Uh, the events uh, were developing exactly the way we assume, and it was Putin's revenge uh, and Putin's decision to show that uh, he is powerful and he can deal with all his enemies like exactly this way, and to demonstrate that uh, all the people who dare to challenge his power would be punished exactly this way and their attempts wouldn't be successful and the consequences would be so dire. Uh, we can say that there can be several possible repercussions for Russia and consequently these things that are happening inside Russia of this big scale uh, also have a certain uh, influence uh, on Ukraine. So what could be these repercussions uh, in uh, for Russia? First of all, we are talking about the signs of uh, Russian authorities' weakness. What I mean by saying that? Uh, the dealing, like the way of dealing with political opponents or those who criticize the regime, uh, this way of dealing with them uh, this repression, like these actions are signs of repressions uh, in, in Russia. It means that uh, the Russian authorities are getting weak because they cannot, they do not have any other means of coping with their uh, opponents, uh, but only using these violent methods and um, like the direct assassinations, let's say so. Uh, so it can be a sign of fear, but of course the repression tools are used at times when uh, the situation in power is not that stable. The second thing uh, can be connected to Russians' presence in Africa. We shouldn't forget that um, Prigozhin and his paramilitary company was directly involved in so many uh, so many conflicts in um, African states. Uh, so uh, this group, even though it was 
private. It was the translator of uh, Russian interests in Africa. So Prigozhin's figure was important there, and he had a wide uh, scope of personal contacts there. Now, uh, we don't know uh, who will be this dark cardinal of uh, Russian authorities in Africa, uh, and maybe it may influence the position, the uh, strengths of Russians in, in Africa. And also, uh, we shouldn't forget that Prigozhin was a big public figure who had supporters among Russian population and uh, among military uh, representatives of Russian army. So, um, of course, we cannot say about revolutionary events, uh, things like that. But still, the elimination of such a big uh, public political military figure may cause some uh, dissatisfactions among uh, military circles and in uh, Russian population, which potentially can make Russian authorities even weaker. But what is going to happen? What consequences these um, death-slash-assassination will have? We are just to observe and discuss further. Yes, indeed. And I agree that basically it all boils down to only several scenarios that can develop when it comes to the impact this all can have on Ukraine. Uh, first is that the Wagner mercenaries are going to uh, get infuriated with everything that happened and to, you know, to attack the Kremlin in whichever sense of the word. But I think that given the reaction, uh, very uh, I would say slow and very weak reaction in the last you know day or two. This uh, is not going to happen. They either also have uh, the option to indeed to go to Africa and represent Russia's uh, interests, because in in their crooked way, but still, because I assume that uh, also the killing of Prigozhin also played into the hand of Russia's plan to basically nationalize the Wagner group as an asset. So maybe that is what's going to happen. And the third choice that Wagner mercenaries have, I think, is to rejoin the regular troops of Russia that operate in Ukraine. So um, in that case, I think that would be the worst scenario for Ukraine, because even though those people now would be subject to a more controlled entity, they still would be uh, the most cruel element of the part of the of the occupying troops because they are used to being in that way so that of course would be the uh, the biggest problem for ukraine uh, among the three scenarios but it's too early to tell so like nasa said indeed let's uh, let, let's follow uh, this further and maybe the the last topic we would like to draw upon is I, I, I think it makes sense to dedicate this topic to the uh, to the Independence Day of Ukraine because this is not so much of a news break in itself, but this is something that I think is a very right thing to discuss on the date and around the dates of Ukraine's Independence Day. 
and these are uh, basically the recent uh, sociological polls that have been conducted in Ukraine about the situation in the front lines and the geopolitical context of it, uh, how, uh, how and what Ukrainians think about the political developments around the war, what they are ready, and most importantly, what they are not ready to give, give away for the peace to ensue, and all those adjacent things. So, Nastya, can you please tell a little bit more about what I'm getting at? Indeed, Maxim. The results of such uh, of this poll is uh, um, they are really important in uh, context of uh, the Independence Day uh, because it has this uh, symbolic meaning, of course. And also, uh, such results are very important when we talk about um, when we talk about the attempts to. Uh, persuade Ukraine that it's necessary to start negotiations with Russia because recently we hear more and more opinions from around the world that it's time to talk, maybe it's better for Ukraine to give up on some territories, etc. Uh, even though it's not the dominant opinion around the world, still uh, we are hearing such calls, let's say calls, uh, more and more often. Uh, so, um, and when we talk about strategic things, uh, why Ukraine uh, cannot do it, it is very important. There are security issues, there are political issues behind it. But we shouldn't forget about people of Ukraine, about Ukrainians, uh, who are the source of authority in a democratic state. So the recent poll conducted by uh, the foundation, which is called Democratic Initiatives, shows that Ukrainians are not ready to compromise with Russia. We are talking about different kinds of compromises. And when it comes to Ukrainian territories, um, more than 95% of Ukrainians are not ready to give up on our territories. Uh, meaning that the absolute, like the almost absolute majority of Ukrainians are not ready to negotiate our lands for uh, ceasefire or for ending the war, which is absolutely clear and understandable. Uh, because people here also, Ukrainians also understand that giving up on uh, some parts of our land means that Russian appetites will grow and Russia will not stop. Uh, there was also a question about uh, Ukraine's NATO membership, pro prospects of Ukraine's membership. So people were asked, uh, would you uh, ready to agree to give up on potential NATO membership for ending the war? And only 18% 18 of Ukrainians are ready to compromise this issue. And we are talking about almost 80% of those who wouldn't give up on this strategic priority just to stop the war with Russia. And if we talk about some soft issues, and uh, if we talk about culture and language, uh, which... Russian propaganda is trying to exploit uh, while uh, trying to 
justify its actions uh, and telling that Ukrainians, like so many Ukrainians, are Russian-speaking and they are protecting Russian-speaking people here. So 75% of Ukrainians are against Russian language to become a state language. Uh, and these are really, really uh, considerable and significant uh, numbers because, uh, indeed, like many Ukrainians spoke Russian uh, in Ukraine uh, and it was not a big issue. In public space, Ukrainian language is national state language, but in private life, a certain amount of Ukrainians spoke Russian language. But this poll shows that the uh, majority of Ukrainian population doesn't want Russian language to be a state language. And it beats and destroys Russian propaganda. Because Russians have only words. Ukraine has figures. Ukraine has numbers to show. So uh, such polls, they show the world, not only Ukrainians know what, what is happening. These uh, polls, these numbers show the world that, proves the world, to the world that uh, Russian propaganda, Russian justification is just something empty, empty noise. Uh, and Ukrainians are supporting Ukrainian idea and they want to be Ukrainians, to protect the Ukrainian uh, and to protect Ukrainian identity. Yes, indeed. And that is good news that is inspiring to, for us to keep fighting because we understand there are not such divisions as uh, Russian propaganda is telling the world that they are. So, indeed, that is something to live by and to use in moments of hardships. I think uh, this is uh, the point when we shall close. Uh, we have been on air for 47, 48 minutes, I think, which is quite long. Uh, thank you very much for being with us uh, and to listening to our for listening uh, to our uh, weekly podcast. Explain Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, an English language web website about Ukraine. My name is Maxim Panchenko, and I was joined by my colleague Anastasia Hesuchuk. Uh, we are journalists and analysts at uh, Ukraine World. Uh, Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs and let us let me remind you that you can support us at patreon.com slash Ukraine world and you can support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal ukraine.resisting at gmail.com thank you very much and we'll meet you in our, in our other podcast episodes